Hey, before we get started, a few announcements. I'm really excited about this episode. It's our first philosophy guest. It's one that's been on Partially Examined Life with me a number of times. I really like the way this went. I hope you enjoy it. I want to ask all of you to go to the iTunes store to Apple Podcasts and give us a nice five-star review. We really could use more reviews on this particular podcast, Philosophy versus Improv. We also have an Instagram account now. You can follow Philosophy versus Improv on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. There's a separate Facebook group that we should start getting some goofy discussions going in. You can get links to all that stuff, including a very easy rate and review this podcast widget at philosophyimprov.com. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Mark Lintermeyer, a philosophy umboyo, eager to learn improv. And I'm Bill Arnett, an improv practitioner, excited to learn philosophy. And we have a very special guest today. Hi, I'm Jenny Hansen, and oh my God, improv. I can do the philosophy part. The improv is the scary part. You guys are stretching me here. <laughs> It's easy, Jenny. If you listen to episode one, you've already been improvising. Okay. It's already begun. And okay. being honest with your emotions and just saying how you feel, never the wrong choice. That's hard for philosophers, I think. <laughs> Do we have feelings? I'm just kidding. <laughs> this whole thing has been a setup for me to trap Jenny on this podcast so she can tell her real feelings about me. This is the fifth, sixth recording we've done together. It's a lot of stuff. And then two aborted ones, two that you were invited on, but but simply didn't show up. I'm so sorry. The second one I totally screwed up on, but the first one, I can't remember. You mean the one that was, was on busy. A... I don't know. COVID had just started and you were redoing all your classes for COVID times. That's right. I think that's fair. So yes, unlike me, Jenny got her PhD, is in front of students on a regular basis. So I can use her as a crutch to actually tell us the right answer. And you will lose your, well, technically I'm not a philosophy professor. Mark, you're out. Yeah. You haven't used it yet. I thought it'd be fun. I remember when I started teaching, I was just a grader in, when I was in grad school for my first year. I wasn't a teaching That's assistant. That's work. That was something to get up to. And I did use that when, like, I don't know, somebody, I had office hours and some student came to me. I'm like, I'm just a grader. That's why they don't let me in front of the students yet, because I don't know the answers to these questions. But you can grade them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. After the fact. Yeah. <laughs> Just as people will be listening to this and grading us. We actually got a, I think this might be appropriate, a comment from one of our few supporters, Ethan, who uh, we have quoted before. He said uh, about a couple episodes ago, good episode. I have to say I'm learning more about improv than I am about philosophy, in quotes. I mean, formal philosophy. I guess it's like trying to go to some party and start gushing about why Hume is so cool or trying to pull a large thread through a tiny needle eye. Okay, okay, we can work on that. Well, today we are armed to get deeper into the philosophy. Yes, and I have a, I just a phrase, a topic to sort of open things up, see what your preconceptions are, Bill, see what Jenny has to bring to the table as initial thoughts, and then maybe we could act out a scene or do something ridiculous like we normally do. The concept of othering. This is okay. very big, both in public discourse, but it has deep philosophical roots where you capitalize it with a capital O. Bill, do you want to transmit your naive preconceptions? What does this term mean to you? Othering? Like, well, you know, certainly in today's political discourse, there is a lot of us against them, if that's what you're going for. And that's what makes me think about that. And the idea of, well, you know, the enemy is, they're not us. They don't worship a different God. They 
they eat crazy food that tastes weird. Perhaps even they're less than human. Perhaps even that they're animals and not deserving of the rights and moral life that we have. And therefore, we can kill them or enslave them or uh, generally treat them not like we would treat each other. Is that the kind of othering where we're talking about here? I got a nod from Jenny. All right. So Jenny, just throwing that out at you with no context, what are your initial thoughts of like, if you were going to start trying to teach that concept to, as it relates to the history of philosophy or however you want to approach it? I mean, it's a good start. I think one of my favorite definitions of the other is both being at the same time invisible and sticking out like a sore thumb. The way that you described it as a way of maybe having reasons to throw someone out of our moral community, dehumanizing, that certainly is operative, say, in Simone de Beauvoir, that you're treating someone as less than, or in that case, the second sex. But here's another twist. I think that de Beauvoir partly credits the concept of the other to Levinas. And in Levinas's work, the other is sort of the face that makes moral demands on me. So it doesn't have that necessarily that connotation of an act of dehumanization. And then we can even go to Hegel. The other plays a fundamental role in my self-realization or self-consciousness because it's sort of, again, a threat to myself and only in struggling with the other and defeating the other do I become my own self. Okay. So this idea that it isn't necessarily a tool used sociopolitically to enforce some kind of thing you want, but it's also inside of all of us. And could the other be the voice of my mother always telling me what I should or shouldn't be doing? It's a great example. The usage that is most common to everyone who's not in philosophy is the way you described it as a kind of dehumanization. But it can also be inside of us and we're constantly battling it. Or it could be outside of us, but causing an internal self-awareness or or sense of of responsibility. Okay. Like religion in a way, perhaps, could be this idea of you go to church and you learn about some supreme being and that they have some kind of thing that they want from, from us and that forces us to then, do we want to satisfy that demand or do we want to just do our own thing and... It doesn't have to be religious, though. I think it could just be the bare fact that we may not think of having moral obligations until we are inserted into a community of others, right? And somehow that makes us aware that it's not just us. (laughs) There's others. So So I think all those things that Jenny mentioned tie together, certainly in a historical line, but then also if we're trying to talk about more the way you started us, Bill, the society's other, there's some special obligation that this maybe sums up our, our moral moment right now, where we you know, are trying to, to do right by past injustices for slavery, for genocide, and say no more of that. So it, while there is, of course, ethics in the sort of original state of within our tribe, yes, there are others, and we sort of develop codes of mutual respect. But now the big gulf is, well, we've got those others that are still us, and then we've got the true others. And now we're only now, and maybe you could argue that we should even take animals seriously this way or something, you know, that, but definitely all human beings now, those that might have been invisible, as you were saying, Jenny, 
in past discourse when we're talking about like, what is human nature? Like, who is it that you don't have in mind? The people that you have in mind as a historical philosopher, probably people like you. But now we're trying to like acknowledge that those generalizations we made about human nature, say, might not apply across the board. And those things that we worked out of like, what should be moral rules between us here when we're dealing with somebody that is socially, we have previously called, you know, other, then it requires some sort of jump that we can't just rely on the traditions of honor codes or whatever. We have to somehow make contact with those who might not even share the same moral viewpoints, you know, so it it becomes much more challenging. Sure. This might be for later. It's kind of heavy. Should we save it for later or dive right in now? I do have you for a living, so. Okay. (laughs) This way of, as Mark, our tribe versus their tribe, could you say that that kind of external othering from tribe to tribe is amplified in times of need? And that it is kind of this biological way of like, well, if there's enough food to go around, everybody can eat. But if there's not enough food to go around, how do we divide it? And if there's even less food to go around, well, we know they're not getting it. You know, and amongst our tribe, the old and the elderly and perhaps women with children, they may get more of the, you know, this way that we're, as you get less and less food, those decisions have to get made. And one outgrowth of that might be radical othering to make sure that those knuckleheads who, you know, build their houses weird, not only do they not deserve food, we can take their food. You know, what came to mind was <laughs> incarcerated individuals. They're an excellent okay. example of a contemporary other in our world, right? Because we, they become like the repository of all of our repugnance and hatred, and we can feed them less or put them in solitary confinement forever. So there's lots of things that we are allowed to do to incarcerated folks that we would never do to non-incarcerated folks. Sure, that's horrible. Yeah. So that kind of speaks to your point. On the other side thing of things, though, I was thinking you could think of othering as sort of the project of white supremacy. So that it wasn't so much to say we, you don't get to have any food, but that by diminishing other peoples and traditions and cultures and languages and religions, you aggrandize yourself, that yourself is the exemplar and the others are deviant or inferior. And I don't know if that involves scarcity because it seems to me that everyone was doing okay (laughs) until until colonization happened. Well, I think self-aggrandizing doesn't need, humans are real good at that anyway. At least a good chunk of it. They don't, they don't need an impetus to pull that off. Well, and that also might be why Hegel and Marx sort of see it as constitutive of the self, is that part of being a self is being able to say, I'm better than. I mean, the Olympics, it's, it's a wonderful time for everyone to be nationalistic and say we're better than, and then just kind of shake hands and go home when it's over. But uh, the Olympics wouldn't be popular if people didn't have something inside of them that was like, we are better than those. Our rowers are faster than their rowers. For me, it would be being a Liverpool fan. That makes me better than everybody. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Exactly. Well, no, but I mean, I think that's true for people. You know, we, it doesn't mean we have to act on it or take it to the worst degree. And perhaps there are constructive ways that we can outlet our uh, need for value and that our tribe is better than that tribe. So is there a way we can illustrate this? No, impossible. There's no, there's no way. Bill, do you have an idea that's been building through this of a way to start us off on something that will help you get your lesson into the mix? I certainly do. And it's actually made me kind of, well, let me just 
Yes, I, I'll keep my I'll keep my lesson. I had a lesson written down, and then as Mark and I have discovered, it often gets a little tangential. But I'll say this, Jenny: the easiest scene to do is the scene closest to your life experience, and. As long as one of us says something funny every 30 lines, it will be a successful scene. In aggregate. I am not joking. I've done the math. I have literally done the math. We have to be funny preciously rarely. There's a better way of saying that. But uh, it doesn't take too much. That is what I put on my signs. For my, my stand-up comedy act. Funny preciously rarely. The little I know about you being in, in front of students or facing students, certainly anything in that line of work would be probably an easy thing for you to to knock out. Yeah, I suppose there's a lot of improv going on when I'm teaching, especially when I you kind of try to read the crowd and mm-hmm. chuck your lesson as soon as you realize it's not appealing to them. So you try to figure out what they're going to care about. And I think that's great. So let's start a scene here. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Okay. Excuse me, Professor. I have a question. Uh, I brought Dean in with me. And uh, I just want to know why... My paper got a C and Dean got an A when we were kind of arguing the same point. My paper had writing on it. You gave it an A. You liked my writing. It was pretty writing. Could you hold them up and you can see that his is more, his is smudgy and that's, and mine is pretty. And that's why mine is, was better. Is that, is that how that works? Well, maybe the problem is, is that you didn't type yours. And Dean did, so it was prettier. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, okay? But I would think the content of the paper would be more important than the presentation, all right? The content is only as good as the method of conveying the content. So perhaps what I saw in Dean's paper was much more organization of the thoughts and the order of presentation of the thoughts so I could follow his thinking, whereas... I had to work really hard to figure out where you were going. You can see in my opening paragraph, there are the thoughts. And then under that were the, the second thoughts. And then under that were the third thoughts. And I put firstly, secondly, thirdly. And that showed that her what order to read them in. And he gave me a, like a roadmap. Like, first, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do this. All in the service of some idea. And okay. so then I could sort of check it all along. Did you do that? Am I convinced by it? Did you consider the counterargument? So there was a kind of structure and order. This isn't sixth grade, professor, all right? This is when we don't write firstly, secondly, thusly, all right? Did we do that in sixth grade? Because I certainly didn't. Okay, well, that's, I went to a very special school, okay? And you'll probably notice that my paper is handwritten. However, it is handwritten with a feather quill pen that I cut myself. I did not make the paper. However, I did source the paper. I figured since the assignment involved 18th century philosophers, I should construct it from 18th century language and materials. <laughs> that is why you fail. I didn't fail. I got to see. I, I gotta probably see. would give Hegel an F. Oh, okay. H- Hegel gets an F. I think we need to be better at communicating ideas. You know, even if there's content there, hopefully we can make them clearer so that other people can figure out what they're saying. Oh, great. Maybe on my next assignment, I'll just hand in a McDonald's commercial. <laughs> okay. Because that's really clear. My McDonald's commercials were just in the footnotes, but they were not in the body of the paper. Dean, why did you even include McDonald's commercials into a paper about Hegel? I was hungry. Well, at least they were explanatory footnotes and not really part of the argument. He knew where to put them. Uh, <laughs> Professor, 
I think Dean knows this, okay? Dean's not smart. Dean's kind of a knucklehead, all right? We all know that. This shouldn't be news, all right? And if he gets an A, what does that say about this university? That this university prizes the students following directions? And having a father that has donated a lot of money to make the library to have Dean, my name on totally it. you're totally throwing me under the bus here. That certainly wouldn't be one of the motives in prioritizing or, or grading your paper higher. Well, the truth comes out. Certain students are set aside because of legacy considerations, and certain students are set aside because they, they're just kind of... Uh, and I think that you were put in that category in orientation. Aren't you living in East Quad? I mean, isn't that where... Uh, yeah. So, well, I thought he was living in a tiny house village where they make their own paper and, uh, you know, portage their water. That's where I dream to be. That's where I, dream, I would like to be. Yeah, that's East Quad. Do you, do you know how much energy is used just transporting water? Quite a lot. Yeah. 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 And like not having, you know, running water or toilet or shower. It's just running. It shouldn't be running. Water shouldn't be running. I want to. Let's not change the subject. I, I I would like my paper to be regraded, and if you could do me the service of putting your notes in a quill pen, feather pen, that would be great. Could I borrow yours since I don't have a quill pen? Wow. Uh, yes, yes, you may. I'll bring over my calligraphy set and some. Oh, so you also want it in calligraphy? Well, it, cursive. I mean, it's. it's Cursive? Who uses cursive anymore? You obviously have never written with a feather quill pen. Clearly, you haven't written. With it. You have to use cursive. It's when you lift the feather up and down off the page that you get these marks that you... That's why cursive was invented, all right? Well, but then it gets all that splashy, inky blot stuff that, you know, just ugh, messes with the aesthetics. Are we done? Did I get... Dean! I, I got the A, and you were going to give me $5 to come with you to show my paper... Because otherwise, there'd be no explanation for me being in the room during this, right? Yes, I did. I did. My goal was to de-pants you in front of the professor, metaphorically. And instead, I believe that this university was de-pantsed when I heard of the nepotism and favoritism being played to the children of donors. And I am certain that no other school would do such a thing, and that this honor code has been violated. He said nipotism, and I'm triggered, and I think that we should just wrap this up, because we don't need to listen to that kind of talk here. I shall retrieve my large felt hat and riding cloak and say good day. I'm still trying to figure out why it is you think that your flourishes of trying to imitate uh, 18th century writer translates into good ideas. But hey, I said good day. Since he's I gone, will should we... it. as long as you're okay with it, maybe getting a worse grade now that you've irritated me. Since he's gone now, should we just like make out? <laughs> and scene. Hey, you did it. Awesome, Jenny. Awesome, Jenny. That was fantastic. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. And that kind of goes right at the lesson was that was... You're being othered. Well, yes. And my lesson as well that you, I mean, that was, was that easy for you? Was that hard for you? No, <laughs> I literally have to deal with that on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> and usually the person who thinks they deserve the higher grade is very pompous and a bit 
blind. Let's say has a little blindness <laughs> to his or her talents or their talents. So they other themselves. They pull themselves away rather than push other people away. Is that a thing? See, I think though that at least the way I'm thinking of othering is it's essential to thinking of the world is sort of a narrative. And whose story are you telling? And when we talk about, you know, what is the canon of great books or whatever, then it's this, that's the story of philosophy. The story of these is these, and then all the people that are excluded from that, well, those are being othered. And so you can get this notion in your head as a member of a minority group or as somebody who does not feel represented, that it's what Du Bois called a double consciousness, that you're seeing yourself through the eyes of the other, which as Jenny said, Right, according to sort of the Hegel's notion of the growth of the self, that's how we get a notion of ourselves at all, is other people, people treat us in certain ways. So that's like part of normal development, but it of course can become pathological if the people are abusive and don't consider you a full person. And then you get this sort of inferiority complex or however you want to put it, where so I'm interpreting self-othering as exactly the opposite of what you're doing, that you are, you're very self-confident you were putting yourself at the center of the story. And if other people entitled, weren't entitled, yeah. that was the word I was looking for. Like an entire, I have a lot of students who have that entitlement. And I think when they lead with that, I instantly think, okay, you know, this person, <laughs> I can't teach this person anything. Sure. I have young children in school and it is the other parents. Like when problem a occurs, how the other parents feel about problem a is so illuminating, not on the problem, but on the parents. And when a, you know, some kind of event is canceled for whatever reason, some parents might be, you just robbed the children of this learning experience and they will be stunted forever. Or my kid deserves to be in this advanced class. Why? Because I said so. Uh, <laughs> so I guess that would be, is it both othering and self-aggrandizing? Is it, you know? So I had a job at the university where I was in I was the associate dean of the first year program. So I spoke to parents daily and okay. <laughs> uh, I have a sense of what you're saying there. One of the things that's most pervasive in higher ed for me and maybe most people is that parents feel like because they're paying $60,000 a year or whatever it costs to go here, that they get to kind of make this a consumer relationship. And so if their son didn't get into the class that he wanted because he didn't show up to register on time, maybe he should just take his business elsewhere, <laughs> right? There's kind of like a, what do I get for my money? Okay, when I was in college, I remember learning how to write was extremely frustrating to me because I had come from the sciences and I felt like there was a method of inquiry. And so writing seemed like just like no man's land to me. And I didn't always get very good grades. And so my dad said, well, let me write a paper and see what I get. And he got a worse grade. Than me. <laughs> and his reaction was, these people don't know what they're doing whatsoever. You know, in that case, that's an example of parents sort of aggrandizing themselves. Like if I'm getting the slow grade, then clearly there's total incompetence on the part of the staff. <laughs> Let's stop and talk about our sponsors. St. John's College is the nation's great books college, where students explore 3,000 years of human thought. Together, students discuss, analyze, and grapple with the most difficult questions about our lives and world. St. John's College offers the flexibility of both online and on-campus options at their campuses in Annapolis, Maryland, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. The Graduate Institute is a home for students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. 
From Aristotle to Aquinas, Wordsworth to Wolf, Herodotus to Hegel, students pursuing the Master of Arts in Liberal Arts explore some of history's most influential writers and thinkers. The interdisciplinary degree includes five segments, literature, mathematics and natural sciences, philosophy and theology, politics and society, and history. On the Santa Fe campus, students pursuing the Master of Arts in Eastern Classics examine the great books of India, China, and Japan in an Asian studies program that delves both deep and wide into the richness of these traditions. Come join this vibrant community of learners from all walks of life. Learn more about our undergraduate and graduate programs, including online options at sjc.edu slash improv. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash improv. Here's a way to think about therapy. We get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. Similarly, we get annual checkups. We go to the gym to maintain physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. And most of us, hopefully, do chores regularly to avoid a giant mess of a house and roaches. Going to therapy is like all of these. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road. It doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you're investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It is much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not in your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Philosophy versus Improv listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash improv. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash improv. You made me think of something that's a real issue. So if we think about, like I teach at a predominantly white institution who like every institution is thinking hard about inclusion and equity and diversity. So going back to something Mark was saying about, well, there may be a kind of reaction to a student because they're doing it in a different way that's not seen as the norm and the norm is kind of governed by maybe very narrow standards of this particular Western canon. I think that's a good argument. However, there are some faculty who are younger than me and so they're full of new energy and and the truth. They formed a committee of all white faculty who were going to sort of come up with new pedagogical techniques to make sure we were better at being inclusive in the classroom. And some of those techniques included things like, I don't think you should expect your students to be on time because you don't know what sort of financial hardships or, right, or I don't think you should only require papers because perhaps there's other modes of expression like dance, or maybe you should not always just assign readings or something like that. There was a lot of these kind of suggestions. And it was always sort of prefaced in this culture, this is not how things run and you are imposing your culture. And of course, I'm a very sarcastic person. So I started thinking to myself, why don't we flip this around and think about it in terms of white male culture, right? So would love to do that. Let's do that. Right, Mark? Please do not expect your students to show up on Fridays because a very core feature of white male culture is getting shit-faced on Thursday nights. Please do not expect your white male students to do the readings because they already have a sense of knowing everything and want to dominate the discussion and don't want readings to get in the way. Nadoy. I think that's really funny, Jenny. I, I, I think that's really fun. As you were talking about some of the demands, all I could think about was, are we anti-othering? Is this unothering? Which is funny because it does other by saying this 
person. Wow, it's a whole nested Matryoshka doll. It's like a neo-colonial attitude, right? It's like, well, since they are other, we will make it more palatable, right? Instead of there may be some standards that we could agree are worth holding on to regardless of their origin. And we also may want to push some students who maybe precisely because they haven't had a great access to education before now, we want to push them in ways that their previous education didn't. And so in the quest maybe to try to be more inclusive, we end up actually just reproducing the hierarchical system that we have, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble for this. <laughs> <laughs> no one no one will listen. You know, when you, when you put forth general principle like that of let's be accommodating and try to rush to jokes, basically, of like, what are the extreme cases? I think that's entirely like what philosophy tends to do. Like, you set up a rule. How are we testing the rule? Well, let's come up with some sort of hypothetical cases. And how, like, wouldn't that be ridiculous that we would let this thing in as opposed to like, well, what are the actual things that people bring to the table? I mean, are there really students that are like, I think I can better express what I'm doing here through dance than through a paper? Like, are there really students that are doing that? (laughs) If I don't have to stay up late writing a paper, yeah, yeah. But I think that's also, when does individual end and society begin? And it's one thing to say, well, this society is other, but is another person an other? Or is it like, no, you're part of a bigger culture. And I don't know. We're getting very granular with what counts as a protected class. Or at least that's what that, that sounds like to me, perhaps. I may be putting my foot in my mouth. <laughs> no, that's a helpful way to put it because that's how the law treats it, right? But again, just trying to sort of tease out what might be good norms that we can support and stand behind and not assume that they are fundamentally flawed because they may have originated in a tradition that didn't let women participate or people with different hues of skin color or languages. So I think that's always a tough one, you know, because again, because I'm always doing this sort of reductio, which is what I just did. (laughs) You know, I was thinking like, okay, let's say I take seriously these recommendations and then I'm asked to write a letter of recommendation for this student. And I'm like, well, Celeste, I can't say much about Celeste's ability to show up on time since I decided it was not fair to require attendance or to be on time. I cannot decide if Celeste will be able to carry out some of the writing tasks of your job because again, (laughs) Celeste was allowed to express herself in a much more comfortable cultural mode of expression, you know? So, so it's weird because we do have norms that govern our lives that we have to submit to, to achieve certain things in life. To participate in society. Yeah. And if we throw them all out and just say, okay, well, in my culture, we do this. In my culture, we do that. It's hard to figure out who's the protected class and who's not the protected class at that point. Sure. Because we're Instead of trying to undo maybe a hierarchy, we're just sort of making everybody a protected class almost. If I don't know, maybe that doesn't follow, but that's, of course, where my mind went is that, okay, well, if we're going to talk about cultural difference, then don't white men have a culture too? And so then are we just making it about anything goes? But that might make me sound extremely conservative, and I'm really not. I think there's a reluctance to get into this discussion because you don't want to give the bad guy ammunition. And you saying, 
your little thing about, well, white males can not come to class on Friday because they're getting loaded, is giving the bad guys ammunition. The bad guys being people who willfully wish to exclude others, people who willfully are trying to tamp down other people's rights or, or make or to other for their own political economic gain. And those people exist. And that's bad. And we don't want to give them ammunition. And the last thing you would want, any of us would want, is for the douchebag gazette to lead with Professor Jenny Hansen says, and in some way that will give them, that said, we can't have a discussion without having two sides. And even though this discussion is the left, left, left versus the left, left. The liberal versus the... The Antifa. Yeah. And, you know, there's some, well, I hope everything gets sorted out and the university makes the best decision. You know what I can't get over in this COVID era related to othering is how much I other anti-vaxxers. And no matter what, I cannot bring myself around to sort of say, you have a right to not get vaccinated. For some reason like that, is just impossible for me. And I actually still have a lot of resentment. And I wonder, is that othering? Because that's the way the anti-vaxxers are presenting their cases, that you're not allowing space for us to have a different view and come to different conclusions. Well, I think that's what you said earlier about like, at what point does our wanting to accommodate begin violating our own ethics or our own, I forgot what you said earlier about. Or what's in the best interest of everybody. In the best interest of, yeah. Yeah, like the common good. Yeah, and when does othering or the need to unother begin violating a common good kind of a thing? I guess is othering okay sometimes, as long as you explain why you're othering. Maybe we should uh, do a little of that to close this out. <laughs> so nope. I've got a scene in my head that you you are a couple, you're running a, a dinner party, and I'm a guest at the dinner party. You know, I just uh, I, I want to thank you for letting me come, even though I, I know you guys are all like, oh, the vaccine. And I told you that my culture, we're not really down with the vaccine. But yet you seemed, I mean, as long as I would was going to stay in the, the kitchen, you said that I could be around. I mean, it would be nice to be with the other guests, but this is, uh, I really feel privileged to be here. Thank you. Hey, no problem. It was wonderful having you. I'm not sure why your wife is giving me that dirty look, though. Well, I just wish that you could have joined us. You know, I mean, the whole point of a dinner party is to sit around a table and talk together. And we did the best we could to accommodate you. But it was sad that we couldn't have you actually in front of us to share in the conviviality. Yeah, I appreciate you installing the big plastic screen so that I could watch you guys in there. And I, I've been able to hear most of what's been said. And thanks for pushing some food through the hole. We did give you some wine, too, I believe, to try to loosen you up. I had to hold my hand out and you kind of poured it through the hole. It was a glass would have I'm been nice. I'm still not good at that. Yeah. I'm in the kitchen. I'm not sure why I had to take all the glasses into there. I have a difficult question for you, and I don't really want to ask it. Yeah. But uh, perhaps it will display my own ignorance and my own. What culture are you? I'm just not sure. And I don't mean that to be insulting. I don't know. You seem to be just a regular white guy. Well. Is that insulting? Each of us has our own complex melange, a combination of cultural roots. And, you know, going back, one of my ancestors was was on the Mayflower. And did they have vaccines on the Mayflower? No. I mean, that's why a lot of them died of things. But I carry those traditions like 
you know, my, my parents didn't take any COVID vaccines and their parents didn't take any COVID vaccines and their parents didn't take any COVID vaccines. I just feel like it would be insensitive of you to force me to go against what they would. Well, I, I just, I just, you know, Ronnie is a Sikh. You saw him there. He's a fantastic guy. He brought his wife with him. And you know that we've got, uh, uh, Danielle and Charles uh, are a Muslim family, and uh, and not that I know everything about Sikhs or everything about Muslims, but I do understand a few things. I wanted to be sensitive to those needs. What could I Google to help me understand you? Because I just don't know what, am I labeling? Is this horrible? And here's my problem with this. Maybe I'm going to push it a little bit further because I'm perhaps not as accommodating as my husband, but... You know, there's lots of people who say their family tradition was enslaving people or maybe hacking off their arms because, you know, they wanted to send a message not to rebel against, uh, you know, the company. So I'm just not convinced that, you know, that's a form of honoring tradition, just doing the same thing. We don't hack the arms off our slaves. I'm not sure where you would get that. Yeah, but I'm just, I'm just, I just, I don't, I don't, I, um, what box do you tick? All right. You, the census comes around and what, bo- I'm not saying you don't have a culture. Okay. I'm not. See, the thing is yet, yet just going to say that. I just want to know what box you tick. I'm sort of outside the box. So if they have like a bunch of boxes, then I'll tick next to all the boxes in the very whitest, blankest, largest space that there is on the sheet. Oh, I thought maybe you'd say you just don't want to be labeled that maybe you are in no box. Right, exactly. I'm really the the area surrounding all the boxes. Well, that's not a that's not a culture. That's not the whole idea. Is that you have a subset of traditions and beliefs, and that that subset makes you distinct and different from another subset, and they are both beautiful and wonderful and to be celebrated. But we, I, it feels kind of grab baggy. I'm going to say it. It feels a little grab baggy. And um, look, if you need a label, I mean, masters, does that work? You know, because because it's not wow. the thing is you went. It's there. not a strict hierarchy of like you know us on the top and a specific group of others on the bottom. It's really just because we want to leave it open that we're open minded. If new creatures, if they're creatures from outer space, if there's animals, like they'll all be under me and my people. Like artificial intelligence, you mean like androids? I'm ready to be master over anything that comes my way is what I'm saying. And you can leave our house. You can leave our house now. Actually, I'm quite surprised and thankful for your restraint that you didn't just walk in and infect us all right away since we're clearly all your subservience. I bought the bank that owns your house and ah. there's, there's going to be some, some implications of that. I was ready to let you leave with just being lazy and opportunist and self-enriching. You know, I was just, I was ready to let you go with just a personality failing. <laughs> a moral failing. Far, far worse. It just turns out you're evil. I mean, yeah, pretty much. There might be some negotiating still to do because I did pay for your house in master dollars and the banks don't, all the banks, you know, don't necessarily accept those, but we're, uh, you know, taking measures, targeted assassinations. Careful. A few slaves in the right pockets here and there, and then, you know, it'll all be sorted out. You're getting very, very close to the banks that control the world. Okay, you're getting close to some dangerous territory, and I think it's it's time you left our house. I don't think we'll be inviting you even to the kitchen. I don't think a plastic sheet's enough. I don't think this is even a kitchen. There's really nothing kitchen. There's no appliances. Is this... It's time to go. It's time to go. I'll get the door. All right. 
don't let it hit you on the way out. Yeah, have any opinion about us that you want, because I don't care. All right. Well, well, I, I own language, so I'm going to interpret that how I want. Bye. Oh, God, so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Are we, oh, oh, I had a little bit more, but we can end there. We can no, end go there. Ahead, go ahead. Right. No, yes, please. That guy was a real douchebag. Uh, and I just want to apologize to actual feminine hygiene products to label them as being wrong or gross. <laughs> but no, I think a douchebag is a perfect name because no one should be douching anyway. So it's terrible for exactly, you. Exactly. Exactly. I think sometimes coarse language, while used by hateful people, can just be coarse language. That guy was a douchebag. I think you can be intolerant towards the intolerant. <laughs> and now, okay. That's good, because you shouldn't let that character have the last word. <laughs> there we go. However, in real life, I probably would have had my mouth agape if there was really a person like that. It would take a while. And then what would come out would be heavy, heavy, mean sarcasm. <laughs> so if you wonder why Mr. Bean doesn't talk, that's because that's what he's like. Actually. He can never put his foot in his mouth if he doesn't talk. That's for sure. I'm sorry for slandering Mr. Bean. I was like, how does Mr. Bean get into this? Also, uh, you did a great job, Mark, going right at my lesson as well. Yes, I think it's time to reveal. Do we have any guesses? I mean, I just thought you did a wonderful job easing Jenny into this thing that she was not comfortable with, such that the second one, she was totally into it. Totally into it. Not a professor, not in your world. You probably had dinner parties at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, now that I think about it, it was easier to play along being taken out of my actual real job because that just immediately put me on the defensive because it puts me into the space where that happens. And I'm like, sure. Well, I'm just glad that we won't have commenters like you brought Professor Hansen on and you just made her be a goldfish in a scene. What is that? <laughs> what, why are you even what, why was she even there? <laughs> Uh, so I think I, I don't have any guesses, strong guesses on what your lesson was, Bill. Do you want to just reveal it now, explain it a little more? At the end of the day, what were those scenes about? If you take away the specifics, take away dinner party, take away college, take away the costumes, take away the name tags. What's going on in those scenes? Conflict? I don't know. <laughs> when is it appropriate to engage in conflict maybe you know sure well it's the idea that underneath all these scenes even if we were goldfish even if we were you know harry potter characters there's a simple human thing going on it's simple it's something we've probably experienced in our own lives having to deal with someone who wants something from us having to ask sensitive information from somebody have a difficult conversation these are all things that happen in our lives in any myriad of context in fact the context is unimportant and having a difficult conversation with a Little League baseball coach who smells like beer and cigarettes after a game is the same as having a difficult conversation with a student. The same, you know, and again, and difficult conversations are just yet another part of our human experience. So in all these scenes, in all these scenes, at their heart is something very simple and human. And that was the lesson. And I thought you guys did a very, very good job of just participating in those scenes and exploring that, the human condition. A+. Plus. So if I have to add a detail, and then I'll let Jenny add as much detail as she wants, just to this whole discussion of othering, is that you know in a lot of ethical philosophy, there's a clear answer, right? You figure out what's good and bad, and then the answer is, do the good thing. But I think it's built into this concept of otherness, especially if we're seeing it as something that is essential to psychic growth at all. Dealing with other people, and then how do I actually deal with them appropriately? It's not just a matter of like, well, just ask them and then do whatever they want. 
<laughs> like, it can't be that. There's going to be values involved when there's a conflict with people and you have to figure out then like, should I defend my values and say that the other people are othered for a reason? They don't follow these values that I have confidence in. Or do you completely sacrifice your values and just say, just tell me what you want? Like both of those seem like cowardly. There needs to be some sort of balance and ongoing discussion. These difficult conversations, as Bill was just saying, to actually work these things out. And it's something that makes armchair philosophizing about it, where you try to just be simple and like, oh, freedom of speech. Everything boils down to freedom of speech. Or it boils down to imperialism has ruined everything. We need to reverse that process. What the hell does that mean? Like there are limits. This is one of the the areas of philosophy that invites and necessitates actual dialogue and not even between like-minded people. So I'm going to sound maybe like a professor again, but I just came before this, I came from teaching ancient Greek philosophy and we've just finished doing all the Plato and the Socrates, right? And when you said cowardly, that really resonated with me because if there's one thing you can learn from Socrates' approach to, we could you know, use the example of, I refuse to get vaccinated, blah, 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 because that's just the way my family operates and there's no other defense than that. Maybe an equivalent would be like when he's talking to Mino and Mino is like, well, I don't know. I mean, how do you know when you found it if you don't know what you're looking for? And that pisses Socrates off because it's so simplistic and it just shuts down any further conversation. It's like, well, if that's where you're going to land, you're just lazy or a coward, right? And that the courageous route is maybe what Bill was saying is just figuring out how to negotiate these conflict-ridden situations. I see a lot of my students want to avoid conflict. And so they just fall into a relativistic framework, right? Well, that's okay, you know, not how I would have done it, but they don't, they literally don't even want to have arguments in the class with each other. And it's frustrating because I think, I think it is lazy and cowardly to not enter in. And I don't think it's even ethical, right? I think you're not even. The chances of us having a society that is somehow perfect and everyone is happy, that's just, certainly not my possible in my experience. So there's going to be a give and a take. And what gets given and what gets took is open for discussion. And if you're not going to say, this is what I'm willing to give up, but this is what I want to hold on to, well, then we're not going to have a happy society where everyone is, is happy. Stuff is going to get took from people who don't want to be took from, and stuff will be given that perhaps shouldn't be given. Well, then the masters will take over, right? If we well, just sort exactly. of <laughs> like, okay, that's your culture. Fair. And then they're like, yeah, and my culture is to take everything from you. And like, yeah, they're going to win. So the many faced character of the face of the other ethically standing before us and figuring out like they want something. What is my actual obligation to that? That's like, you know, a way of putting the ethical challenge. I like that because it preserves the many meanings of other. And I think we should because I think the predominant or the, the one that people use the most is that sociopolitical othering of people. And that has led to a bunch of what you said, like empty rhetoric, like, okay, well, let's undo imperialism because that was othering. Okay. What does that look like on the ground? You just can't undo that somehow. So there can be only one. Not one, not one to one, at least. <laughs> In all these face-offs, we've now had the, you know, there can be only one, one victor per episode. And Jenny, as the, as the guest here, you have the option. You don't have to take the option. But based on what you've heard here, do you think the philosophy lesson, not what I had to say specifically, or the improv lesson, which of those has had the most profound effect on the world, 
on the people here and on everyone else coming out of this? Do you have a do you have a sense? Can you declare a victor? The improv lesson. <laughs> All right, explain a little more what you what you enjoyed out of that. It's very effective at helping you internalize and really see what's at stake in these arguments. And maybe I'm going to start using that in my class because lately I've just been like, can you guys just argue with each other? (laughs) And maybe that's what you have to do is create a very maybe seemingly mundane situation and then ask them and then later on reveal the master plot there. I think it works. I'm kind of a believer now. Well, I will say, A, thank you. And everything you said was 100% correct and taken to a level I hadn't even considered. It was brilliant. Uh, <laughs> well, good luck with your master plot. You, you will get you, something that you have done a good job with that Mark has done a good job with is, is having a thought or an idea and, and pushing it. You can get very tepid improvisers who end up. But then the lesson is when you step back and look at this as a real situation is that what did you get from being tepid? You know, these people walked all over you. You gave and gave and gave. And at no point did you ever fight for anything and win anything. And so that'll happen. Improvisers get very pushovery as if thinking they're doing a good job. I don't want to be cause conflict. Yes, and I want to be agreeable. And they end up being inhuman and not looking like <laughs> behaving like people who apparently have no pride or dignity or, or any uncrossable lines. So please use this in your lesson, lesson planning and, 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 and report back. Well, that would depress me, though, if I just had a bunch of tepid improv students. Thank you so much for joining us, Jenny. Thanks for having me. This was actually really fun. Had a wonderful time. Thanks so much for being involved. Of course. Thank you. I enjoyed learning from both of you today. And I also enjoyed learning from both of you. I'm glad that you learned from me today. (laughs) And scene. Hope you enjoyed the show. Get more at philosophyimprov.com. If you want to support the show and not have to hear any more commercials and get our post-game segments where Bill and I and sometimes guests will elaborate on some things that came up in the episode, reflect on the future, and share our recommendations in the philosophy and comedy worlds, you can see options to do that at philosophyimprov.com slash support. Thanks. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.